Drew Blazik is a husband, father, and recent convert from a Pentecostal Protestantism to Catholicism. And he's a member of our Pentecost 365 movement. We began actually just a few months ago, this movement that is now taking root throughout the country. One of the seven commitments that we make is daily prayer. What you're going to hear in just a few moments is Drew sharing with our small group his own reflection and thoughts on the purpose and power of intentional daily prayer. If nothing else, hopefully this will whet your appetite, that all of the saints, in so many words, acknowledge that this distinguishes those who go to heaven from those who go to hell, that saints are cultivated, forged by a commitment to daily personal prayer, and those who go in the other direction resisted or did not or allowed obstacles to stand in the way of cultivating daily personal prayer. So over the last few weeks, he and I have been discussing this. How do we help men who know this is true to move from simply knowing about it to actually committing themselves to doing it, to discovering the grace, to overcoming the obstacles and the resistance? And Drew, I think, did a fabulous job drawing from the great wisdom of the saints and his own personal experience and asking men to truly make this time as one of the fundamental commitments of faith to receive the grace by cultivating daily personal prayer. If you want to find out more about being ignited in everyday faith, if you want to receive that grace, if you want God to forge in you, with us, the dispositions at the heart of disciplines, I encourage you to join us at Pentecost365.us. We as brothers in Christ invite you men to join us. Find out more again at Pentecost365.us. Sign up and join us. And now, Drew Blazing. When we go to heaven, go before Christ, uh, God is going to ask us one thing. is how much we loved. That's all he's going to ask us. doesn't matter how much we fasted, how much we prayed. If we didn't love, all that stuff doesn't mean anything. So the virtue that makes every other virtue, charity, is the love of God. If we don't do it because of the love of God, every other thing we do is nothing. But what is fasting, what is prayer? It's an act of love to God. But without love, it's really nothing. Um, that's one note. The other note is when we commit mortal sin, this is why mental prayer is so important, we connect ourselves to the demonic. We, we have a connection to the demonic. The devil, demons can have power over us in a way. Even if you go to confession, if you're not doing the proper thing, they're going to come back furious and just take you over. And that's, that goes into the mental prayer, I think, important. Okay, what is mental prayer? St. John Vianney saw he was praying before the sacrament and he saw this poor farmer would kneel down before the sacrament and he would do it for hours with him. So he was like, the saint was really excited and he said, wow, he's in it with me. So he went up to him and he asked him, what do you say to our Lord when you're praying? And he said, I say nothing. He just said, I look at him and he looks at me. That's it. And when you think about that, it's almost like, what is mental prayer? I'm looking at God in different ways. I'll get into that. And he looks at me, and you got to examine our conscience, how, where we're at. So mental prayer is a heart-to-heart conversation with our Lord, and that's what it is. It's a, it's a conversation with Him. St. Thomas said, at the end of history, when we have to face in the final judgment, it's going to be revealed to us all the times that we really don't want to have that conversation. When you, wanna, when you love somebody, you want to get to know them. Other than the ultimate sacrifice, giving up your life, I know a true friend really wants to get to know my passions, who I am, ask questions about me. That's, that's something about that. It makes you really look. 
And that's the same thing, I think, with mental prayer is getting to know God and God get to know us. Okay, there's two things mental prayer does. It helps the soul to get closer to God, number one. Helps the soul get closer to God. And number two, it prevents the soul to fall back into sin. Number two. St. Teresa Avila said, it's impossible to meditate in Christ's passion and have mortal sin. There's two faculties that men have that are very important when it comes to meditation. And an external fac faculty is like the eyes. The eyes see, that's an external faculty that we have. The two internal faculties of the soul are the intellect and the will. Those are the two main ones when it comes to mental prayer. Uh, the intellect is guided by reason and thought. So it's, it enlightens us what is truth, and it enlightens us where to go. The will is the desire and what we're going to decide what we're going to do. The will is the faculty that demonstrates love. The will is love. The intellect isn't. I mean, the intellect can be, you have all truth. Without love, you're nothing. And I think with mental prayer, I, I know my, 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 my uh, intellect tells me this is what I should do every day. But if my will is weak, I'm not doing it. I'm lazy. So that's not an act of love. And again, we are judged on our love if we're not willing to sacrifice for God, I think, in certain things. There's five steps to it. Number one is preparation for mental prayer. So preparation is where you have to pray to God, give me the wisdom, give me the strength to do it. You have to find a good time to do it. You have to prepare yourself properly. You have to know what kind of state you're in and you want to prepare act, um, correctly. Number two is selection of the material. You can find an artwork of Christ. You can find a crucifix, meditate on that, a Bible verse. Uh, it could be a devotional reading. Um, Anything that's truth about God is what you want to meditate on. Consideration is number three. So it's who, what is, what is our Lord doing, and then what, and what does that apply to my life? So you think about like the last gospel was about the, uh, the four different stewards. Which one am I? And what does that mean? What does it apply to my life? Number four is conversation with them. So when you're doing a mental prayer, you want to think about you know what, I'm lacking in this virtue. I need this virtue. I need charity. Without charity, no other virtue means anything. So what do you do? You ask Christ for it. You ask him in mental prayer and say, God, I want to have more charity. And then number five is conclusion, which is resolution. It's the decision and act of the will that uh, decides what we're going to do. Just to briefly go over really quick about that. Preparation, you do it. The selection material is the intellect. The intellect decides what kind of material, what is truth, what should we do. Consideration is an act of the will. When we're meditating on whatever story, image of Christ, a lot of times things will come in our mind. I got this going on tomorrow. I got work going on. You go back to the image. I think images, I've been printing out a lot of uh, different old pictures. This one, uh, the holy face of Christ was all bloody. And you just stare at that. And... Uh, um, so you always go back to that when you start losing uh, focus on it. I heard, I heard a priest say that God will give you consolation. So it's that great feeling in prayer for the soul to understand at the beginning that pr mental prayer with him is more important than anything in this world. But at the end of it, he will take away the consolation. And he takes it away because he wants to make sure and see how we are that we're not praying just for the consolation. We're not praying for that great emotion. Not for that great feeling. We're sticking with it because that's an act of love. He wants to see how much we love him. And uh, they say when that happens, 
a lot of people will quit, say, hey, it's not working, I'm not doing it right, but that's just part of it. So the mental prayer, all must focus on the conversation with Christ. That's what the whole uh, part of the mental prayer. Um, that's the five steps. With me, I've just been getting artwork, a Bible verse, and just thinking about it. And I think that's been the most powerful with me. Um, 15 minutes a day, I think it's all it takes. Uh, I think St. Thomas said 30 minutes is good. 15 minutes in the morning, maybe 15 minutes at night. I think it was St. Thomas, he said, all saints are saints because of mental prayer. He said, all saints are saints because of mental prayer. St. Teresa of Avila said, all prayer consists not in thinking much, but loving much. We talked about the intellect and the will. The intellect is, uh, is reason, and it also guides the two lower faculties, which are imagination and memory. And imagination is where, let's say, the Annunciation, you can imagine yourself and you feel the air and you see the angel there and then you see Mary and the angels bound before Mary. That's imagination could bring it all together. Uh, but some people aren't gifted with those. So Lexio Divina is the way if you don't have imagination and uh, memory that well. All it is is taking a scripture verse, a simple verse. Don't, don't read too much. Don't, don't do a whole chapter. It gets really confusing. Do one verse like, and he wept because Lazarus died and meditate on that. And you're replaying that same verse in your head for 15 minutes. And it's not thinking. It's just all about the will. It's going on, um, uh, meditating on it. So it's just finding simple verses. St. Teresa Avila did this. Two straight hours was Our Father. She meditated on that one uh, uh, line for two hours straight. And, and it, I did it one time, and it was pretty amazing because it opens you up and you can think of all these different ways. Our Father, He's my Father this way. I thought about the creation of the world. And you just enter into that, and you're not saying a word. You're just like mentally thinking about that the whole time. St. Thomas said that prayer is a requirement, a requirement of justice, that God requires it. It's not just something we should do for consolation or... It's justice. I mean, he requires it to get closer to him. Uh, meditation is the entrance to all other higher levels to be a saint. You cannot conquer sin without meditation. This is just quotes from the saints. You cannot conquer it without meditation. Another thing a saint said, immediately after taking communion, I don't know how many people do this at church, one should enter in meditation right away. You shouldn't look at anybody else. You go get on your knees and just meditate on what just happened. I forgot what saying it was, that one communion should, it has the power to make us a saint. One communion. If we properly did it properly. Okay, some other quotes. I love uh, St. Alphonsus Liguria. I think it's kind of a bone-chilling uh, quote. Uh, put it on Facebook, a lot of Protestants like, jumped on me right away. And then I kind of intellectually like, brought them into it and they agreed. Okay, maybe it's correct. Whoever prays is certainly saved. He who does not is certainly damned. All the blessed have been saved by prayer. All the damned have been lost through not praying. If they had prayed, they would not have been lost. And this is and will be the greatest torment in hell. To think how easily they might have been saved just by asking God for His grace. And this is bone chilling to me. But that now is too late. Their time of prayer is gone. St. Teresa of Avila said, The devil knows that he has lost the soul that perseveringly practices mental prayer. He knows. He just gives up. That's her point was, if we do that every day, you'll see sin start dropping off. Another saint, I think St. Thomas says, it is possible not to sin. Like, I know Protestants think it's impossible. Like, we sin in our sleep. 
But it is, it is possible, but it's impossible not to sin without mental prayer. Uh, what St. Thomas said. St. Alphonsus Ligorius said, Were you to ask, what are the means of over, overcoming temptations? I would answer, the first means is prayer, the second is prayer, the third is prayer. And you should ask me a thousand times, I would repeat the same. <laughs> and then I just want to, because this is part of our seven, uh, another quote by Alphonsus, he said, Know also that you will probably gain more by praying 15 minutes before the Blessed Sacrament than by all other spiritual exercises of the day. True, our Lord hears our prayers anywhere, for he has made the promise, ask and you shall receive. But he has revealed his servants that those who visit him in the Blessed Sacrament will obtain a more abundant measure of grace. Last quote I'll read is, He who does not meditate acts as one who never looks into the mirror and does not bother to put himself in order. Since he can be dirty without knowing it, the person who meditates and turns his thoughts to God, who is the mirror of the soul, seeks to know his de defects and tries to correct them, moderates, moderates himself in an impulse and puts his conscience in order. That's St. Uh, Padre Pio. But I guess to wrap it up, I would say, uh, since how long have we been doing it? A couple months? I've been trying to do it, and I feel like once you get in the groove, and I have a specific time, I do it right when the kids are in bed. I go down the basement, have all these spiritual bunch of pictures of Christ, and I get excited about it now. And that's what sin does. When I sin, I feel guilty, and I, I don't feel like I can enter into that sometimes. But I learned that he, it doesn't matter where you're at. He wants you to pray. The rosary, I just want to say this, the rosary, and this was, I think, the beautiful genius of the rosary is that when you do it, it takes about 15, 20 minutes. They say you should pray the saints for 15 minutes. And the rosary is only powerful if you meditate. You could enter the meditation when you say the Hail Marys 10 times in a row. You can really enter into it. And the rosary, and that's the whole point of this, meditation. I, I would highly suggest, if anybody hasn't done it, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And it, it, it's the only way I've conquered certain sins. It's the only way. And, and when I'm doing it, I feel more inclined to pray in front of my spouse. I feel more inclined to do those family prayers. I've, I, I feel motivated. I feel like it's part of me. I feel like if I don't do it, I feel weird. And, uh, and last thing I just want to say is when I was a kid, all I did, I loved basketball more than anything in my life. And I couldn't stand it when I saw people that say they love basketball and they didn't dedicate themselves to it. So I dedicate my whole being to it. That's the same thing, I think, with God. It's like we got to give everything, and, and it's the same concept. If that's who you want to uh, die to, we got to give up everything for it. And just, and, but it starts with prayer. And, and once you do that, I, I feel like, I'm not saying it's more necessary than Eucharist, don't get me wrong, but if you're taking the Eucharist without praying and knowing it, that can be very dangerous. And if you have right preparation, the graces that God gives in the Eucharist is dependent on how the soul can receive it at that time. So if we prepare ourselves properly, we can receive more graces from the Eucharist. I'm very blessed that you put this together. And as I say to my kids, when they acknowledge virtues and qualities in others, I say it's not enough to have admiration. You have to have emulation. And what you exhibited and what you talked about is worthy of emulation. Particularly, it seems as you shared there, that this was an occasion uh, Pentecost 365 to ramp it up and enter into this. Is that correct? Is it is was that the occasion for you to really step up? We talked about this. Remember, I talked about a long time ago about like said basketball. I write everything on the wall. Yeah. And first of all, is love of God, and 
But my intellect kept on telling me it was right, but my will was weak and I didn't do it. And then it's just that group thing. It just pushed me to do that more so. I, I knew I was going to do it sometime and just lazy. And uh, um, I think it's something, uh, you know you're going to do it, you're lazy, but once you do it, it's hard to stop. It's like uh, working out. Once you work out past a certain time, like you can't quit working out unless you give it up and then it's hard to get back to it. Father Ripperka said that a lot of people when they try, all these thoughts come in, oh, what do I got to do this, what do I do that? That's your passions, your lower faculties taking over. That means you're just not strong in the intellect and the will yet. And it's just something you have to work on. And it's, it's like anything, it'll work out on it. But that's what happens to a lot of people. Then they quit, they get discouraged. What one priest said he learned was the, the, after the first hour of mental prayer when it gets really good. I haven't gotten that far. But just to throw, like, if you're looking at pornography, what is that? That's drilled in your memory and your imagination. You can't break it. So what does mental prayer do? You're putting God in your imagination, your memory, and that's throwing that the trash out. And it's really making you stronger and more powerful because you're putting God into your memory. Courageous and honest men today are looking for more than softball answers to hardball questions. The answer to this is something that we're calling Battle Ready. Well, what's that? It's a model of bringing men together in fellowship with some beverages and brotherhood, yes, but with a hard-hitting talk by somebody who really addresses fundamental issues that men are dealing with. It also includes an opportunity for confession, prayer, and praise. And what's cool is that it's integrated into this thing we call Pentecost 365. So what's that? We have these special occasions and weekend retreats and programs that maybe touch us for moments. And for too many of us, it becomes embers too quickly, if not dissipate altogether. And men are left asking the question, you know, how do I live this out on a daily basis? What are the basics of receiving the grace that God wants to pour out into our lives as husbands and as fathers? Because he desires so much to see the world transformed. And you know, the way he does that is through marriage and family. So Pentecost 365 invites us men to be united in seven commitments to live this out, to receive that grace on an everyday basis. So what you're going to hear in the next 30 minutes is a wonderful talk that took place in the backyard around a fireplace with a number of brothers gathered to listen to Pastor Bo address the issue of spiritual warfare. So we invite you to listen now. And if you're interested in joining us, it's open to all men age 18 and over in this Toledo region. Once a month, battle ready. Check it out at Pentecost365.us. Greg asked me to talk about spiritual warfare and what lessons can we learn what lessons have I learned through my military experience regarding spiritual warfare? And it's funny that he talked to me about it because um, I've thought a lot about that over the years. I mean, over the years, I've thought a lot about what that is. And I, it, it harkened back to a, a book. One thing you have to understand about our military, all militaries, they always fight based on doctrine. They always do. And so they have a certain philosophy of how to fight. And one of the things we are told in the American military, all branches, is to read this book. It's called On War by Karl von Klotzowitz. He was a German general who fought during the Napoleonic era. And Klotzowitz had two interesting things. And, most, and I have to say this, I read the book cover to cover because most of the officers that I knew never read the book. They would quote it 
uh, they get, I guess, the Cliff Notes version, but they wouldn't read it. But there was two very interesting things that Klaus would say that directly, one directly impacts and has a, and you'll see that hopefully how it impacts, it's actually a spiritual principle. One, he said, is that war is an extension of politics. So, and the reason why we were reading this is because in, I, I went to school in the early 80s, we were trying to understand what happened in Vietnam still. We were still trying to digest Vietnam. A lot of, a lot of my professors and teachers were Vietnam vets. So we were still trying to figure that out. The other thing he said, which was, this was the most profound thing he said, was that there's a concept called the center of gravity. It's not a physics concept, it's a political concept. And what it means is this. If one, two nations are going to war, if one nation is able to capture the other nation's center of gravity, they can bend the will of that nation. They can, they can, make, they can alter that nation's foreign policy, national policy, and war fighting capability. So, for instance, the Germans understood Clausewitz very well because he was a German. And so during the Franco-Prussian War, World War I, World War II, when the Germans looked across and they set the Alsace-Lorraine and they saw the French, they knew one objective. To make the French will bend, you must conquer Paris. There was a little general, little only in stature, but big in brain. His name was General Giap, and he was Vietnamese. And he understood and studied the Americans. And what is our center of gravity? What is that thing in America that if you grab that, you, make, you can bend the will of America? You can make America change its foreign policy? You can make America do this and then do that? What is that? Freedoms. Freedoms? What is? Anybody else? Family. Family? Casualties. Casualties. Actually, from a political standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, family and, and these things are very important, but from a political standpoint, public opinion. And General Giap wrote a book called People's Army, People's War. He learned from Mao. And in this book, he talked about three-pronged attack. There'll be three talons. They almost look like talons. You can see it in the book. One would be military operations in uh, South Vietnam. The second will be what they call now psyops or political operations in South Vietnam. And then the third claw would be political maneuvering in America, to change the public opinion in America. And they knew that if they could draw things out and change the public opinion in America, that they could bend the American will. And the objective, of course, is for us to leave. It's interesting, this word will, because in, in Scripture, we run into this word, but in a, in a, in a hidden fashion. In this Deuteronomy 6.5 says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus repeats this, but he changes, he doesn't change it, but he emphasizes in Matthew chapter 22, he says, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Jesus already explained earlier in his ministry that if you have the mind, you control the actions. Now the word translated in Greek for love, we, take, we, take, we say love, but the actual word is a powerful word that we have no word like this in English. We have to write a paragraph or a sentence to describe this Greek word. And the word is agapeo. You've heard agape, love, agapeo. And we know agapeo is love that's from on high. It's godly love. But what is that? Let's break that down more. And what does that mean? 
You see this even in the conversation between the Apostle Peter and Jesus when Jesus was restoring him. Jesus asked him, do you agapeo me? And Peter says, no, I phileo. I, I, and what was he saying? What was he saying? What, what Jesus was saying is, in the word agapeo, will you bend your will to obey me? See, in the word agapeo, it's a word of choice. It's a word that actually is born from one's spirit and one's mind to choose to love. God so loved the world, he chose to love us. He made that decision. And so in the word agapeo is this idea of to bend your will or to have really ask the Holy Spirit to bend your will so that whose will be done? God's will be done. We know from the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So to love the Lord is to do his will and to live his will. We know this also because Jesus says, if you love me, obey my what? Commandments. So love is not a feeling. And love is not even, it, it's, it's worship, but what kind of worship? It's not worship singing songs. It's a worship, if you permit me to stand, the Greek word is called hupotasso. It's a worship, it's to, it's to submit willingly, not being forced, willingly submit yourself to the Lord, to our Lord. It's a very powerful, powerful act to submit. And so the center of gravity, brothers, is our worship. Will we submit to God? There's no winning the spiritual battle unless we love him, and to love him is to obey him, and to love him is to submit to him. But in which realm? How, where are we to submit to him? Jesus is, Jesus is an overwhelming God in everything, in everything. I tell people in our church, if you don't know how to dress, pray. Jesus will dress you everything. You say, how can that be? I say Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What is Romans chapter 12, verse 1? I would read it to you, but it's too dark. I can't see my Bible. <laughs> what does it say? Romans chapter 1, verse 12 says, our life is a living sacrifice. So if you're wondering what the altar looks like, the altar is you being sacrificed, and God... Yahweh, the Father, breathing you in the sweet-smelling sacrifice. Like he breathed, you know, in the times of the Jews, uh, Hebrews, the, the sacrifice of the altar, the cows, and the, you know, all the, he breathed in that worship. He, he breathes us in. This is how intimate things are with our Lord. It's not a casual relationship. It's a highly intense and so it goes on in Romans because at that point of worship, we go to a next level. And what is that next level? The next level is for our minds to be renewed and to have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Now, now we think like him. 
Now, this is not a one-time process. This is, a, a, we, we believe in sanctification, meaning the process of becoming more like Jesus. That is our goal, to be like him. You can summarize the whole walk of Christian life is to copy Jesus. Easy said than done, right? Much easier. Well, what did Jesus say about his father? I have come to do whose will? My father's will. He hupotasoed. He demonstrated exactly what love looks like. And it wasn't begrud begrudgingly done. It was done with great joy. So that's, the, that's where it gets to be kind of interesting for us human beings. We're really good at when we're serious and we have this high ethic of duty and we start doing things. It's almost like a, we used to say like a checklist mentality. The military is like that, very checklist. It can't be that way. Because the Hebrew word for love has a great connotation, a powerful connotation for great affection. And so we have yet at the same time where we're, we're submitting to God, we're doing his will, there must be a great joy and affection. We're doing it because we have somehow allowed the Holy Spirit to touch us and so the, the love of God is now in us and now it's springing forth from us. And so what, where, where we used to do things, maybe because of fear, maybe because um, it was the right thing to do, peer pressure, maybe we had a, a conviction, but maybe we lacked some understanding. Now we submit ourselves to the fire of the Holy Spirit so that when we're doing things, it's out of a deep sense of obedience and love. And I'm, that's redundant, but I'm saying it because our English language does not have that word like agapeo. And a deep desire to please the one that has given us life. Our, every breath we take is given to us by our Lord. Every breath. Everything we have is His. Get a seat over here for you, Padre. Right next to Deacon. Welcome. So here we have this very intense notion. And I'm going to ask you a few questions. See, this is how the Bible encourages us to judge ourselves, meaning to examine ourselves, not to condemn ourselves. We have no right to condemn ourselves. And I want to emphasize this. We cannot condemn ourselves because we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ Jesus, who gives us life because he resurrected, we, we will resurrect. But, but we are to judge in a sense of examine ourselves. So I'm going to ask you some questions. And I will tell you, for those of, who, who, of you who are fathers, You'll know the answer to these questions because of your conversation with your children. Think about your conversations with your children in the last, say, week, two weeks, three weeks, four months, whatever time frame, and, and see what kind of things you've been saying to them because Jesus tells us very clearly what comes out of your mouth springs forth from your heart. We know the heart is not the beep, 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 beep thing. It's this thing up here. This, is, this has to change. We all have to change. We all are being transformed 
Romans 12, 1 and 2 teaches us. So question one, how do you define success in your life? How do you define success in your children's life? Contemplate that. How do you define it? What is a successful life? Jesus speaks about this very clearly. And the examples we have, the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament show us what success looks like. And it doesn't look like the American dream. Success, I will say this for you, for those who might be guessing in this way, success is not a two-car garage, Harley Davidson in your back barn, and a cottage in Michigan. That's not success. Those are good things, but that's not success. What gaineth a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Matthew chapter 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, Jesus tells us, but I want to encourage you to ask yourself that question. You might be able to check the right bubble, or if, you're, if the, your parish priest asks you the question, you give him the right answer. But at 2 a.m., when you're looking in the mirror, what are you really thinking? And when you're in the business Monday, 8 a.m., 10 a.m., some of you long, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., what is truly your measure of success? Second question for you, brothers. Where do you go for your comfort? Everyone here is old enough to know that the world is not only unreasonable, it's overwhelming. We don't have to admit it, but we know. The world is unbelievable. Our brother here comes and tells us, <laughs> we're just trying to relax around the fire. Our brother brings us news, yep. encephalitis news. news. <laughs> yeah. Now everybody's spraying. Brothers who, the brothers with the long pants are saying, praise God. They're saying, oh, it's too bad for you guys in shorts. Bad decision. <laughs> Some of us wish we were to wear long sleeves. What I'm saying to you is this. You, talk, you guys read the papers, of course, and internet, what have you. And you can't get away from it. You see so many people with addictions. You see so many people with behavioral things. What is that? They're fleeing stress. They're trying to get comfort. You know that bad country song, they're looking for love in all the wrong places? That's, that's what they're doing. We live in a culture that cannot cope with life. Period. My proof is drive down the street and see how many, when you go home, if you go through this, not through the back roads, but you go through the, see how many pharmacies you pass. What is that? Both legit and illegit, people trying to medicate to cope with the stress of life. High blood pressure, cancers, cardiovascular issues, one after another. They can't cope. Where do you go for your comfort? Really? See, this is worship. Worship is obviously in our churches. We worship as a community. But that's hollow if the worship is not happening right there. Or in your corporate office, or wherever you work, or in your bedroom. 
that has to be worship. Everywhere you go, Jesus is an all-consuming God. He doesn't play games. And remember, um, the Bible talks about him one day he returns. He will not be the man from Nazareth. He'll be the king with a sword in his mouth. For he's king. We live in a monarchy. <laughs> Where do you seek your comfort? When you make decisions, and many of us are business people, and I, and I will tell you, I'm bivocational. I own a business as well as being a pastor. That's the only way I feed my family. God uses that to feed my family. So I have to pay the minister. <laughs> it's, I'm happy about it. I really am. It's a joy. When we make decisions, what is our criterion for that decision? Where are we going to, to know what God's will is or the will for our life? How, how do we even teach our kids? Where should you do? What should you do? How, what school should you attend? Where should you live? What job should you take? How are they making those decisions? If you're like most Americans, it's, well, there's a few things. It's the open door, right? Whatever's available, whatever's easy, we'll go through that door. Or it can be the old pros and cons. And let's be honest, I left my wallet in my bag here. It's a dollar bill. It's uncanny to me how I've seen over the years, and I've been pastoring now for 15 years, but been in the same church for 25. It's uncanny to me how people make these big decisions, and somehow a lot of these people make these decisions, and somehow automatically it's always the economic correct thing to do. It's always the financial right thing to do. It's like Jesus is the great financer of their life. Obviously, taking the higher paid job that keeps you away from your family, that doesn't allow you to come to church on Sunday, obviously that's a better decision because there's more money in that bad boy. Huh? Does that sound like Jesus? Does that sound like any of the apostles? Or anybody we read in the, in the New Testament, or old even. But yet, that's how people make decisions in our culture, and frankly, every culture in this planet. My question to you is, how do you make decisions? How do I make decisions? We have a young man in our church, and he was going to get a promotion. He's a, he's a police officer, and he's going to become a detective. And he, he turned it down. Why? Because he would miss church on Sunday. We only have one service. We're not, we're not a big church. When he said that, my heart was like a, a flame. I wanted to run to him and grab him, you know, just hug him. Finally, a man of God who cannot be turned, who will not submit to almighty mammon. I'm not saying don't make money. Trust me, in my business, I'm trying to make a few bucks, okay? I got people who need to eat got a mortgage, but it cannot be my God. When I win a big deal, I pray so hard that I don't celebrate too much. I do not want to bow to mammon. So are we worshiping the almighty God in our places of work? Who's getting the credit? Who's truly being honored? These are some of the questions I ask myself. And I ask myself these things, guys, 
on a daily basis. Because uh, the Word of God has a, a line that's kind of, I have to take it the right way, but I will confess to you that I don't, I don't always take it the right way. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> now, I, I can't, intellectually, I know what that means. Uh, spiritually, I, I think I got the theology, but I can't help but <sighs> take a deep breath and like, whoa, Lord, what are you saying to me? Fear and trembling. He's a mighty God. He's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. But he holds the scepter in his hands. I revel in the fact that he calls me, calls you to be part of his army, to be part of his family, to be part of, of the body of Christ. It is such a great honor. And, but let us do it with integrity. Let us not abuse his grace. Let us ask ourselves these hard questions and ask ourselves, are we truly worshiping God? Not on Sunday or Saturday if you go to service on Saturday. Of course, we want you to be. But how about Monday? How about this one? The, a great hour of iniquity. Hours of iniquity. Friday night. Saturday night. I want to share this last thing with you. I deal with uh, a lot of men who, uh, who are tortured by shame through, because of sexual sin. They're tortured. And God has commissioned me to help free them of this. It's not something I've come up with. It's something I was taught and trained. What I want to say to you is this. No matter what ails you from something as intimate as sexuality or maybe you're afraid about the bills, you're worried about the money, you're worried about relationships, you're concerned about whatever troubles your heart. Our Lord has, because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection, our Lord is more than able to give us this level of power to, so that we can fight spiritually. See, there's, unless we win the battle of the mind, we can't win the spiritual warfare in our homes, in our churches, or in the society. We have to win this one first. This is the first battle. To have the mind of Christ is spiritual warfare. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, that we have the power by the Holy Spirit working through us. Okay, don't get it wrong, guys. Don't do this on your own. And don't act like it's a battery. That whole battery analogy does not work. That's not the way the Holy Spirit operates. You don't plug in, pull it out, and then go do your thing. If you do that, you're going to be what we call a casualty. KIA, WIA, or MIA. Okay? That's not the way it works. You make sure you, you stay plugged in. <laughs> Ask for a longer extension cable from God. Don't go to Lowe's. Go to some special store to get a 10,000-foot cable. Don't mess around. We're able to 
tear down by the power of the Holy Spirit arguments that come against Christ. Any lofty notion that comes against Christ, we can tear it down. So when in your mind, when you feel like whatever that is contrary to who you are, a son of the Most High God, a member of God's family, men of God, whatever comes against that, the Holy Spirit will give you the power to tear it down and control your thoughts. It's going to be a fight, and it does take practice. And frankly, brothers, I do well sometimes, and I sometimes fall short, but I never give up. Don't give up. This is the good news. I heard some of you are long-suffering. You're Cleveland Brown fans. My sympathies greatly. I tell people now, never be a fan. Just like the sport. Don't be a fan of any team. Right? Isn't it, really, isn't that better? Just like the game. It's not possible, I know, but try. This is the good news. Lots of good news. We win. We've won. Sin and death has been defeated. Stop. Let's stop acting like losers. We've won. Why have we won? Because Jesus carried us over the touchdown line. I used to play rugby. Jesus scored the try for us. Reached out, put the ball down. We won. The cross, the victory of Calvary, and the power of the resurrection. Sin and death could not hold him down. And because he rose, we rise in him, in him. You are victors. I'm looking at victors in Christ right now. What a great honor this is. That we have to stop acting like victims. We are victors. Thank you. You are tuned into Ignite Radio Live, listening to a backyard conversation we call Battle Ready, a monthly gathering of men to be really challenged and encouraged in fundamental ways to grow as godly men. If you want to find out more, go to Pentecost365.us. When you uh, live in an achievement culture that we live in, coaches tell you what you're doing wrong more often than what you're doing right. So we're, we're used to seeing the red on the paper, right? Like you get a paper back, you see the red. That draws your attention. And that's just one of the things about our culture and because we're achievement culture. You know, Americans are very, you know, if you travel in Europe or something, some other cultures, what, the first question Americans ask, what do you do? What's your profession? It's an achievement culture. Not what book have you read? or what music you like, or do you play the guitar? No. We ask, what do you do? Hey, that's we, an achievement right there. <laughs> it is an achievement. It's wonderful. But you see what I'm saying? <laughs> and so we get caught up in that. That's mammon. That's the god of mammon. It's so imbued in our thinking, we can't even see it anymore. What's and, the wound at the heart of that, do you think, Pastor? Why do we do that? Ultimately, it's we human beings from Adam and Eve want to control things. It's pride. We want to be in control. What does your kid say to you? No, I want to do it. 
we're that kid. <laughs> but this is the beautiful thing. God already knows that. When we were still enemies of him, he loved us. So the Bible teaches. And so even though we're silly that way, in comparison to God, we're like, we're a two-year-old. <laughs> even though we're silly that way, he still adores us. There's a scripture that talks about the Lord sings over us. Sings over us. Can you imagine? Think about that. He doesn't sing over things he hates. He sings over things he, it's, I won't even use the word love, adores. I tell my kids sometimes, you know, I used to sneak into my kid's room and I was so, like, I, I have to say, sometimes it was a little rough, so I had to, like, renew my love for them while they were sleeping. You, you dads understand what I'm saying. That's how Jesus is constantly. You know, going back to what you were saying, I think I thought is, you know, we, we want to take things in our own hands. You know, that's why we're critical. And I must, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't think we should be lazy. And I will, you know, if I'm coaching, I will. <laughs> you got to run a little faster, lads. But there's a point in which we must accept and hopefully come to a sweet surrender to God's grace and realize that we are imperfect and that's just okay. We're never going to hit the mark 100% on this planet. There'll always be some aspect of us. I tell people that we have a, a doctrine of sanctification in, in our beliefs that then that's a process of becoming more like Jesus. I said it, that process is until death bring you together. I go back to Ephesians chapter five, you know, we're, this topic, we're in Ephesians chapter six, which is spiritual warfare, but there's Ephesians chapter five. Without Ephesians chapter five, you could forget about Ephesians chapter six. There's no, there's no fighting. You have to have a good marriage. And so what does God say? We are to be Christ to our wives. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He died for her. He laid his life down. So what does that mean? It's really, it's, it's tricky, but it's, if you can at least attempt to put your preferences on hold and think of the greater good of, for your wife and your children, that's the first bold step. And I, and I don't even ask for perfection, even out of myself, but can we put our preferences on hold and say to ourselves, God, what is the best thing right now or whatever issue we have for my children and my family? See, but that can't be done unless we're worshiping Jesus. It always goes back to the first commandment. I'm sorry, that's my theology. Mm -hmm. Because if we are worshiping something else, you can forget about it. Our preferences will always live. We are who we worship. Scary, scary thought. Some of the people, if, we, if they were to transform instantaneously to what they worship, you would see a whole lot of dollar bills walking the streets, <laughs> driving cars. We are who we worship. We think like the one we worship. Ask yourself, what am I truly worshiping? In that, you'll have the power to be a husband, to love, Christ, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. But if the mind is not right, brother, you can forget about it. The battle will be lost. Dealing with sexual sin, and most of it is pornography, that's the most prevalent. And it infects human beings as young as 8, 9, 10. 
Let me just say this. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is so powerful that you, and, and I, I'm going to use the word literally because it, it's true. Your neurological patterns in your brain will change. The Bible and the Holy Spirit and learning the ways of Christ will change your neurological patterns in your brain. But it's not going to happen in a day. It can, don't get me wrong, but normally it doesn't. I tell guys, this is going to be one of the roughest journeys of your life. You're going to have spiritual enema after enema. It makes, it's like the golly in the fall, category fives everywhere. Guys know what I'm talking about, whitewater rafting. Um, it's a nine-month commitment. And then another year, uh, I, I ask the guys, I invite the guys to spend another year with me um, in leadership training. Sex is actually, in, in Jewish thinking, sex is a mitzvah. The rabbis will, will, used to say, you can miss synagogue if you're making love to your wife. It's a mitzvah. It's a good deed. <laughs> How you like that one? You know, we live in this culture, you know, we get bombarded and everything's polluted in our head and something that's supposed to be joyful and beautiful has become shameful and we're, you know, and, and we're all crazy with it. So it take, it's a big battle. I believe if men win that battle and they win the battle of money and they stay humble, they win the battle of pride, they're, they're, they're going to do great things for the Lord. All three battles are tough and they're all interrelated, by the way. They're all interrelated. So that's the commitment it takes. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And this is the beautiful thing, because the guys who've gone through it, man, they love it. I've had guys go through it twice. And you know, the, the issue is not sexual sin. That's not even the issue. The issue is a failure to cope with life. And people act out sexually to cope with life. When one has an orgasm, it, it, it induces a lot of endorphins. It gives you a high. God did that on purpose so that you would be united with your wife. He, he wants that to happen. He built us this way so that we would, the marriage covenant would be stronger. It'll be, it'd be intertwined. Our souls intertwine with our wives. They are intertwined. Um, that's why the Bible says not to <laughs> fornicate because you're intertwining with something that you shouldn't be. Um, so, the, so that's not the hard part. The hard part is having the courage to look at your soul and ask yourself questions about who do you worship? That's one of the questions. So it's about discipleship. Are you, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus that he will take care of you? You know, these are the, the questions that really are important that help us cope with life. And as we get the mind of Christ, we overcome the frailties of our humanity. If you want to find out more about being ignited in everyday faith, if you want to receive that grace, if you want God to forge in you, with us, the dispositions at the heart of disciplines, I encourage you to join us at Pentecost365.us. We as Brothers in Christ invite you men to join us. Find out more again at Pentecost365.us. Sign up and join us.